Hello there, listeners, and welcome to Earth 616 and this version of Invasion of the Body People. That's right, we are the variants that you have come to be with, and maybe we're the best ones to be with. Let's find out shortly. That's right, this month we're going all things multiverse, because two of the biggest films, well, certainly the most talked about films, have been multiverse films! Way. So we're just going to talk about all of that, but before we do, for Vincent... Hello, 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 hello. No, that wasn't an echo. That was me speaking from across the multiverse to all of you. We're all here, all variants of Vincent. But I do say I'm not alone here. We've heard from Russell, but I think we may also have at least one version of a James. Hello there, I'm the aforementioned James, and I am reveling in the wonderful nature of the latest Tom Cruise blockbuster. I mean, he's been doing this for so long, he's been bringing out so many hits, but it's astounding that even in 2022, he can one-up himself with the latest iteration of The Mummy with such wonderful effects and Russell Crowe with a wonderful Cockney accent. How do they do it? <laughs> In your universe, that movie came out a bit later, didn't it? <laughs> uh, perhaps, or maybe I should have said it was a sequel or something. Who knows? Is your universe the one where Morbius is a good film? Oh, there's no universe like that. <laughs> You've looked through all of them, and in no scenario is Morbius good. Just like Doctor Strange in Infinity War, looking through all of them, there's nothing. Wow. Yeah. Well, at least at least it was a very thorough search. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Morbius aside, should we talk about some good films? Should we talk about stuff that isn't, you know, whatever the fuck Morbius was? I still haven't seen it. I will one day see it, but not yet. I'm not yet ready. Um, and before we get into multiverses, Vincent, we're going to talk about a pretty big film festival that took place about, it finished about a week ago now, roughly, when recording? Yeah, that's right. Yes, um, I, I think uh, that would be a good topic to discuss. So where are you taking us can, today? You know what? Can do. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was waiting on that one. Now, I think it's fair to say that we are all here um, budding film critics and journalists, or indeed established ones. And I suspect that visiting the Cannes Film Festival is on all our lists of places we'd like to go. Oh, yeah, ever oh. since it was shown on Mr Bean's holiday. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah, there you go. I mean, what, what higher a recommendation could there be? Because after all, the Cannes Film Festival is one of the most significant and prestigious film festivals in the world. It runs every year, allowing for pandemics. So it didn't run in uh, 2020, 2021, funnily enough. Um, this year, it ran from the 17th to the 28th of May, and it screened such films as Final Cut and Crimes of the Future, The Blue Kaftan and Mediterranean Fever, Top Gun Maverick and Elvis, Feminist Riposte and Salmon, The Truman Show and The Godfather, which should give you a sense of the range of films shown. Now, I think it would be fair to say it sounds like absolute mecca for people like us. Unfortunately, it's quite difficult to get into <laughs> because 
you require extensive accreditation, whether you are a film practitioner or a journalist or part of, a, of film culture, and you submit your accreditation request via the website. And if you don't meet that criteria, you don't get in. Now, this exclusivity perhaps is indicative of the attitude of the festival, which is, but on the other hand, it seems almost contradictory because the official website describes the film festival as a crossroads for world cinema. Therefore, I guess they need to be somewhat exclusive and not just let any old thing in. Um, it's worth noting that the French film community first attempted a festival in 1939, which was interrupted by World War II. Yeah, it happens. Um, the festival started properly in 1946 and has continued ever since. And here's an interesting fact about the history of the Cannes Film Festival. Prior to 1939, the most prominent film festival took place in Venice. But in 1939, the Venice Film Festival Awards demonstrated a certain amount of, shall we say, bias to the fascist regimes of Germany and Italy. Thus, France set up its own film festival in protest. And I consider that a reminder that art is and always will be inherently political, which continues at this year's festival where there have been boycotts of Russian distributors. As with many film festivals, Cannes is a combination of films seeking distributors and major films getting their premiere. Now this year, some of the films looking for distributors included um, Smoking Causes Coughing, a film by Quentin uh, Dupont, in which a guy in a rat suit bosses around the French version of the Power Rangers. And then it gets weird. Also, Corsage by Maroy Kreutzer, concerned with, the, with Empress Elizabeth of Austria, who was idolized for her beauty and for inspiring fashion trends. There was also Pain Hustlers, um, directed by David Yates of Wizarding World fame, in which a mother takes on a new job and gets more than she bargained for. That's a film that's been picked up by Netflix. Remember, some, when Netflix says at the beginning, original Netflix production, it might not be. <laughs> um, Cannes is the, is the number one international market for first time films, and therefore it's a combination of newcomers and established industry practitioners and press. There are only around 50 films selected for the festival out of sometimes 2000 submissions. Imagine being on that selection committee. I mean, nice work if you can get it, but damn. Um, and the official program of screenings includes film screening and competition, both feature and short films. And the festival defines such films as works of quality in order to contribute to the progress of the motion picture arts and to encourage the development of the film industry throughout the world. There's some examples of films that were screened in competition this year include Holy Spider, which is Iranian, the new David Cronenberg film, Crimes of the Future, that I suspect we may be quite excited about, and the new film by James Gray, Armageddon Time, which might be a riff on the idea of Armageddon, out of here, it's that time. Then there's also films that screen out of competition, in a sense, which is to say these are films that need to be recognised but not awarded. This year featured George Miller's 3,000 Years of Longing, 
with um, Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton, um, as the aforementioned Elvis by Baz Luhrmann, and a little film called Top Gun Maverick, which received a five-minute standing ovation and saw Tom Cruise receive an honorary palm door. Then there's also a kind of a lower key version of the main competition, which is what's known as Uncertain Regard. By the way, I do apologise to all French speakers for my horrible accent <laughs> and pronunciation. Um, films screened as part of Uncertain Regard include War Pony, Joyland and Harker, by first, all of which are from first-time filmmakers. And then there's also the Cine Fondation, which is for... Um, a, sec a section of the festival exclusively for films made by students enrolled in film school. Now, you look down the list of different films in the different categories, and it does sort of boggle the mind as to how do we determine what film or indeed what sort of film goes into each category. And I think the answer to that is it's likely going to depend on the values and the subjectivities of the jury members, which is another reminder that for any experiential product like film, um, because a key aspect of that product's value is determined by the experience of the consumer, such awards, such criteria, such standards are ultimately subjective and somewhat foolish. We talked about that on our Oscars episodes. We'll probably mention it again. <laughs> There's no such thing as objectively good experiential products. But speaking of awards, Cannes certainly does present various awards determined by a jury that consists of industry people, both largely actors and directors. This year, the jury included Vincent London, whom we might remember from Titan, uh, Numi Rapace, who we will doubtless remember as the, the original girl with the dragon tattoo, and more recently was seen in Lamb, um, the director, uh, Jeff Nichols, and uh, Laj Lai the actor and director Rebecca Hall, um, actor Topeka Pudonke, uh, Jasmine Trinka, Joachim Trier, who directed the recent Norwegian film, The, the Worst Person in the World, and the Oscar-winning Iranian director Asghar Fahadi, um, famed for The Salesman and A Separation. Now, the most prestigious award of the Cannes Film Festival is the Palme d'Or, um, which uh, was their Best Film Award. This year that went to Triangle of Sadness, which also won the Prix de l'Artiste Technicien. That is an award for a technician's creative collaborative work. Um, Triangle of Sadness, the winner of the Palme d'Or, certainly sounds interesting as it concerns um, a cruise full of super rich people. Is uh, The ship sinks and the survivors of this shipwreck find themselves trapped on an island. Hmm. Whether hilarity ensues or carnage, well, I guess we'll have to see the movie. Um, and as mentioned, there was also an honorary Palm d'Or awarded to Tom Cruise and also to Forrest Whitaker. And effectively, the second prize of the festival is the Grand Prix. And this went to um, joint winners, Close and Stars at Noon. Close is a film concerned with a, with a friendship that gets disrupted and Stars at Noon is a romance set against the backdrop of 1984's Nicaragua. Then there's the jury prize awarded to an original work that embodies the spirit of inquiry. According to critic Dave Kerr, this was also a joint as it went to the La Otta Montagna and Io. 
Now, Lotta Montagna is another film concerned with the trials and tribulations of lifelong friendship. Io is a film about modern Europe seen through the eyes of a, don of a donkey. Then um, perhaps more um, understandably, there are awards for director, screenplay, lead actress and actor. For director this year, it went to good old Park Chanuk for Decision to Leave, a murder mystery that I will certainly be looking forward to. Um, uh, the screenplay went to Boy from Heaven, which is about a battle for influence at a Cairo university um, following the death of a prominent imam. Um, Ka Amir Ebrahimi won Best Actress for the film Holy Spider, mentioned earlier, which is a journalism thriller, um, which best as I can tell is um, about the investigation into a kind of Iranian Jack the Ripper. Sure, sounds intriguing. Um, and Song Kang Ho, whom we likely remember from Parasite, won Best Actor for his performance in Broker, which looks at the issue of unwanted babies. Well, the big problem with talking about these films is of course that we know very little about them since they've not been released yet. But based on what I've mentioned, which I'm aware is quite a lot, anything take your fancy? Uh, um, yes, I mean, like I'm drawn to the directors obviously that I am most familiar with. So like obviously Cronenberg's Crimes of the Future sounds utterly fascinating and a return to the kind of films he made in the 80s and into the 90s and and a departure from, from some of his more grounded stuff of late. Uh, anything by George Miller is worth watching. So 3,000 Years of Longing is obviously going to be on my list. Uh, Mark Jenkins, the guy who did Bait, had a film called uh, Enya's Men, who which is a folk horror. So that's immediately I'm like, ah, oh, hello, you're on the list. But the two films that I most am excited for are uh, Broker, because it's from the director of Shoplifter, and Shoplifter is one of the most devastating effective films of the last like 10 years. It's, it's phenomenal. Um, and honestly, anything by Park Chan-wook, I'm going to gorge myself on. His films are fantastic. It's been six years since The Handmaiden. To have him back again is just very exciting, and it sounds intriguing, as all of his films, when you first hear about them, sound intriguing. So yes, yeah, so those are kind of the ones that jumped out. There are a lot of films, though. I went through the list. There are a lot of films. Um, I've yet to see Top Gun Maverick, so I can't really comment on that. I will watch it in spite of not really liking Top Gun because everyone says it's amazing. So, yeah, I would say, I, though, those five films, are the ones I was like, I'll watch these. Yeah, I'll say I didn't. I'm no, fa I'm no fan of the original Top Gun either but I very much enjoyed Top Gun Maverick. And that seems to be quite a common response. Mm. Seconded. Uh, anything from Can Leap Out to you, James? Um, well, there's the favourites. Um, Park Chan-wook and George Miller are two of my favourite directors. So hearing there's brand new films from them, Decision to Leave and 3,000 Years of Longing, has me salivating at the thought of finally seeing these films in front of the big screen, particularly when they're such... Um, unique directors they're they're not the kind who would just churn out a studio film just for the sake of um in between projects they when they come to their films you feel they're putting their all into it and it's just fascinating what's going to come from that um i'm also interested in riley keogh's um, directorial debut war pony 
which sounds like a fascinating prospect and she's one of the more interesting young actors I've seen on screen in the past few years so um very interested to see what her to her turning to directing is going to be like and to follow on from Riley Keough the film about her grandfather Elvis Presley which is a fascinating uh, thing I always forget about and but Elvis film I it seems interesting I Baz Luhrmann doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would just do a bog standard biopic it so at the very least with Elvis I feel like we're going to get something a bit different especially with whatever Tom Hanks seems to be doing uh it's gonna be lady killers flashback (laughs) (laughs) yeah i thought i knew when i'd seen the trailers for elvis i knew that it reminded me of something yeah that's um yeah tom hanks being kind of heavy and also very southern um yes that's probably what it was i've never seen the lady killers um either version actually oh well Uh, the 50s one is fantastic yeah the the evening one is fantastic the tom hanks coen brothers one is not Mm. Mm. yeah well, I mean, I'll say I am just reading the synopsis of smoking causes coughing um, makes it sound, you know, just, OK, that sounds too weird to miss out on. Um, <laughs> that's yeah. the uh, Quentin Dupu one, right? That's right. Yeah. Quentin Dupu. Yeah. Uh, and but having read up on them a bit more, Crimes of the Future. Yes, I'm very keen on the new Cronenberg, as well as the new Miller, 3000 Years of Longing. I especially like the sound of... Um, uh, holy of holy spider um because i always enjoy a journalism thriller and um the <clears throat> sort of brief description of this indicates that it's confronting it's, it's using um the kind of the medium of the journalism thriller and the serial killer thriller to explore um issues of gender inequality and i am here for that so yeah i'm excited about that as well as certainly um decision to leave and for that matter triangle of sadness um Yes. So, yeah, I think um, so. that's the Cannes Film Festival. And the interesting thing about it is sometimes the films that come out of the festival are ones that we that get a wide amount of cultural penetration and other times not so much. But I thought it might be interesting to see what the Rotten Tomatoes have thought of them. Here <laughs> we go. Time again. Yes. <laughs> As always, shout out <laughs> to the sequelizers who inspired this. Right then. So what I've done is I have picked three winners of the Palm Door that I suspect we're all reasonably familiar with. And I'd like to know what you think are their, the scores for these on Rotten Tomatoes, as of today anyway, because these things change. Always remember, Rotten Tomatoes is not in any way definitive indication of critical approval, critical opinion, but it's quite fun. So to start off with, We'll start with Russell and then James. The winner of the 1994 Palm Door, Pulp Fiction. Mm. Russell, what do you think is the Rotten Tomatoes score for Pulp Fiction? It is beloved, but I reckon there's a segment of critics who either at the time were like, no, this is not for me, or now like, uh, sort of how it's kind of cool to dunk on bad on 
classic things. I'm going to go with 89%. Now I feel that's too low. 89, yeah. Okay. Um, hmm. James, how about you? I think it. I'm going to lean towards it being quite beloved. 91%. Okay, thank you very much. Right, next up we have um, from uh, the following decade, Palm Door winner, Fahrenheit 9-11. What do you think, James, is the, is the Rotten Tomatoes score? Uh, I know it was, well, beloved enough, but I think there were, it would be much lower. I think I'm going to go with 78%. 78%. Okay, okay. Russell, what do you think for Fahrenheit 9-11? Mm, I think it's slightly higher, uh, but not too much higher. I, I think James is close. I'm going to say 82%. I think that it's mostly a critically praised film, but there will be some conservatives who hated it for obvious reasons. Fair enough. And then jumping to 2011, Palm Door winner, The Tree of Life. That uh, Terence Malick oddity. <laughs> I find it interesting to think that out of Pulp Fiction, Fahrenheit 9-11 and The Tree of Life, Pulp Fiction is probably the most traditionally narrative-driven film, <laughs> which is interesting. Uh, Russell, what would you say is, what would you anticipate to be the Rotten Tomatoes score for The Tree of Life? I want to go high again, but I think it's another one that is highly praised and loved. I've never seen it. That's a problem for me. I can't. Ninety-two percent. Okay, Russell says ninety-two <clears> percent. <throat> James, what do you think for the Tree of Life? I've not seen it either, so oh, I'm. This is just going to be a shot in the dark. Um, 85%. 85%. Okay. All right. What that means is, looking over where the scores lie, there and there and there. Okay. Right. Well, it's pretty close, actually. Um Ooh. But our winner for tonight um, is James. Oh. Because James was closer <laughs> on two of them. In fact, you were really close. For Pulp Fiction, uh, Russell said 89. James said 91. The actual score is 92%. Whoa. Um, for Fahrenheit 9-11, Russell said 82. James said 78. And the actual score is 82. So Russell got a spot hey! on. <laughs> so, you know, you kind of get a bonus point for that. So maybe it's a tie. Because on the Tree of Life, uh, Russell said 92. James said 85. And the actual score is 84%. So you are both pretty close on all of them. One out on both of my I know. Wow. <laughs> One out on both and Russell spot on. So... You're getting better at this, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
So um, yeah, oh, that's um, so that's my um, summation of the Cannes Film Festival. Um, sounds like a fan, sounds like an extraordinary event. Uh, who knows? Maybe one day, um, the guys like us will get to go there. Um, but yeah, either way, there's plenty of films coming out of it that we can all enjoy. Yeah, and that is one last thing saying. Can is a lot of these films pop up in other festivals. They do the rounds, so it's quite exciting to see the films that I think will get uh, a journey through the festival season. So I think like Broker and uh, Decision to Leave will definitely be two that go through other festivals. Um, I don't know what's happening in Crimes of the Future because it doesn't have a UK distributor yet. It has ones true. for other countries, but over here, nothing yet. So we might have to wait a bit for that unless mm. Netflix go mad and, and pick it up. <laughs> well, you know, Netflix aren't, aren't known for being particularly restrained, are they? <laughs> Your reputation precedes you. I have to admit, I wasn't expecting an invitation back. They're called orders, Maverick. So from a big old film festival of lots and lots of delicious things to get salivating about, let's jump into the multiverse. Let's talk about two huge films, two of the hugest films of the year that we will both, all of us will be talking about for a while. Um, these are, of course, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and Everything Everywhere All at Once, which in the UK came out a week apart. Uh, in America, Everything Everywhere All at Once came out about a month or two before Doctor Strange. So before we begin, Vincent, what is a multiverse? Well, it is probably everything everywhere all at once would be one way of, summer, of describing it. Um, the simplest way of describing the multiverse would be that for every possible event that can occur, it does occur. Now, this has proved a very productive avenue for um, science fiction and um, other type, well, mainly for science fiction and fantasy writers over the decades. Um, and it is, of course, theoretical. And if you really want to understand it, then you better talk to a quantum physicist. I am not that kind of doctor. But broadly speaking, let's say you decide whether you want to have a ham sandwich or a cheese sandwich for lunch. That, there are two possible outcomes. And the multiverse theory would state that both happen. So one version of you in, so when you make that decision, you actually create an entirely new universe that's split off from each other. And in one of them, you had the ham sandwich. In the other one, you had the cheese sandwich. Um, that is probably the easiest way of describing it. Now, the way this tends to work in narrative forms is that what we like get to see are different versions. Um, I remember one of the clearest examples um, and sustained examples I've seen of multiversal theory in narrative um, is in Star Trek. There's a classic episode of the original series called Mirror Mirror, where four crew members of the Enterprise find themselves on a different Enterprise. They are still the same people, but they are not the same people. They're not part of the United Federation of Planets. They are part of the Earth Empire, and it's essentially a dark reflection um, of the benevolent Star Trek we know and love. And that's, and I say it's sustained because the mirror universe as it's known has also been used in Deep Space Nine as well as um, Star Trek Discovery. 
and various um, Star Trek novels as well. And the nice thing about that is it gives um, opportunities for particular um, characters to be presented in a different way. So you can have Spock with a beard. This makes him very different. Um, you can have um, <clears throat> Michelle Yeoh going out, having an awfully good time playing an evil emperor <laughs> um, in the Mirror Universe. And, 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 there's some, and if you're a fan of Deep Space Nine, there are some very interesting variations of characters there. And that premise, I think, is very much what informs um, the two films we're going to be talking about today, because with a multiverse, you can have a version of a character you know, but then you can do something quite different with it. And of course, the perhaps a useful setup in understanding this would be a reference to the Disney Plus animated series, What If, where we see what if such and such happened um, in, within the Marvel Cinematic Universe? What if um, the Reavers from Guardians of the Galaxy didn't take Peter Quill from, from um, the United States, but T'Challa from Africa? And what if upon emergence from the quantum realm, the zombie virus was brought out of there? <laughs> and so on. Many other versions in What If, which perhaps served as a uh, setup for Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. So hopefully that's a kind of an, uh, a very crude and basic introduction to the multiverse um, and more specifically how it works within narratives. To that end, why don't we talk about the multiverse films out now? Exactly, and I'm gonna help us create our own multiverse by asking Vincent to pick between our two films. So are we gonna start with Doctor Strange or everything, everywhere, all at once. Let's start with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Ah, so we're in this timeline, this universe, where we start with that. And I am the one who's going to start with this, and James is going to pick up with Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Um, so Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness is the 28th Marvel Cinematic Universe film. It is the fifth in the Phase 4, and it is the second Doctor Strange uh, led film, but he's had many appearances in other films. He's been in multiple Avengers films. He had a prominent part in the first half of the last Spider-Man film. Uh, yeah, he has popped up a lot. His character's come up a lot. And it's been, I think, has it been five years since we've had his first adventure? 2016, so six, six years. years. Six years. So it's six years <laughs> has passed since we last checked in on a solo adventure for Doctor Strange. So uh, we should say up front, there will be spoilers. There is no way to talk about in particular this film without spoiling it because there are certain things that they've kept away from the press. There are certain events that happen. There are certain characters have roles in this that are, that are hidden in the marketing. I'm sure by now you've watched this film. It has, I checked today, made 880 million dollars it is the biggest film of 2022 so far top gun may surpass it we'll see what happens with that and obviously avatar 2 is there as a finale for the year but as of right now this is the biggest film released this year sorry morbius it's not you it's doctor strange 2 uh so a basic plot we are first introduced to a different version of doctor strange who is helping a young girl try and escape a demonic force that is trying to kill her. 
he just and she has a power that we later learn that she can travel across the multiverses but she can't really control it, it happens when she's scared it's a key part of the plot this strange decides the best way to protect the multiverse is to kill her and take her power but he dies before that can happen and she is flung into our multiverse it's all getting very confusing isn't it already that is our opener we then uh, slam into Doctor Strange, who wakes up from this nightmare. It's not a nightmare. And he is on the day of his uh, former beloved is about to get married. Goes off to that. Another monster comes, try and kill the same girl. He kills the monster in a very violent fashion, which was lovely to see. And <laughs> I, uh, partner for a trickster into watching a horror film, I kind of had. But yeah, there's a bit where an eyeball gets uh, pulled out and we see the eyeball getting pulled out, which is lovely. Long story short, turns out that the multiverse is in threat. And so Doctor Strange goes to Wanda, who we last saw in WandaVision, take control of an entire town and deal with grief in a very magic way. Uh, and it turns out that Wanda really wants those kids she had in WandaVision. And she is messing about with the multiverse and wants to kill this girl, which puts her up against Doctor Strange. And they go through a couple of different universes fighting. And that's where I'm going to leave it. There's other treats in there we'll probably talk about them as we go in the for genre fans the most exciting thing about this film is a certain director is back after several years directing a comic book movie sam raimi's back he's back in the saddle he's doing a comic book movie this is quite a sam raimi film i think it's actually where it's at its best he doesn't hold back in his raiminess in the kind of tricks and ticks that he has in his craft that makes it a raimi joint um yeah i wondered what you fellas thought of this i so i have an opinion but i wonder what you thought of first because as the kind of marvel agnostic in the room i like some stuff i don't like other stuff i dig their tv shows and i'll get into that at the end of the episode but i wonder what you thought of as marvel fans of this marvel joint uh vincent what did you think okay um i very when we did our mcu episode um i mentioned that dr strange was one of my um like top five um films within the mcu i do feel that the in the multiverse of madness is a bit of a step down i don't think it's as coherent as the previous one um and i think that's kind of a matter of um this on scripting sides i found it was narratively wobbly um, I feel that there are aspects of it that could have carried greater dramatic weight and they didn't. It's like, here's a thing. Yeah. And moving on. And here's a thing. And we're done with that. And so in that respect, I felt that the dramatic stakes were lacked some of the weight that I would have liked. Having said that, I do feel certainly from a directorial perspective, it was superb it was visually dazzling and like you russell i thought it was gorgeously horror inflected um <laughs> the uh, you know the eye removal um as well as some interesting disruptions to bodies and there's a bit of zombie action as well in there um and some interesting kind of quite literally going into the mind which was i think very effective um so I felt it had, I think, I think it was quite, I think it's quite a messy film. Um, and as a result, bits of it are more successful than others. Um, I enjoyed it with some reservations. James, how about you? <clears throat> well, 
I was most excited for this film going into it as both a Marvel fan and a Sam Raimi fan. And for me, this was a film at its strongest when Sam Raimi is let loose, when he's just channeling his past work on the evil dead and drag me to hell, or he's just utilizing the zombie mayhem in by injecting his unique style into the MCU. That's when I fell in love with this film. I think there's a unique take on music during a fight scene, which I was just astounded by. And there's a scene where um, we go into spoilers about cameos. Absolutely. I'm going to bring up the cameos. So go for it. Okay. Well, Wanda's unique way of combating Black Bolt's abilities and the aftermath was a shock to me, which I adored but while I loved that bit it was also in a section which I most struggled with the middle section brings in quite a few Marvel characters for this essentially courtroom scene to judge Doctor Strange and it's during we should we should also say that this is at this point Doctor Strange has been flung into another universe. So mm. we are seeing versions of characters that may or may not be the versions we finally get when they do end up in the MCU, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Or versions that are different from what we've already seen. Yeah. Yes, that's true. And it's during this bit which I just felt a bit a bit lackluster on because don't get me wrong, there's some excellent moments, like the Black Bolt scene I mentioned before, but I just wanted it to go back to Sam Raimi letting loose on a comic book film. This felt a bit more contractually obliged, if anything. <laughs> and I gotta be honest, John Krasinski appears as Mr. Fantastic, and I like John Krasinski. I liked him in A Quiet Place films. I liked him in The Office. But I wasn't a fan of him in the role. It felt a bit too conventional when John Krasinski, who we've seen as Jim in the office, can be not conventional. It just felt like uh, bowing to to something the internet's been fan-casting for years now. And that was an issue, personally, for me. But it... Did you but, feel that John Krasinski could have done more of a stretch? <laughs> <laughs> oh, very well, good. <laughs> but, I uh, mean, the point to bring up there, so for me, the first act I had a terrific time with, it moves at quite a pace. It reveals early enough that Wanda is now the Scarlet Witch and is our antagonist, which was held back from the marketing, which I think was a very effective thing to do because there's other stuff in the marketing that kind of revealed that I don't think they should have in such as the presence of a certain um, mutant. And then we get flung through the multiverse. We get that wonderful brief sequence of about seven or eight different universes that they go through really quickly. We get the paint universe. We get all these different universes and then it lands in a universe that's rather boring. That is quite close to the version we've been in. And then we get some fan service that never, none of it really clicks in me. And I found it all a bit impenetrable at that point. I think there's an impenetrability to this film in that 
it has I, I had no idea who Black Bolt was. I haven't watched the TV show he's from. Um, I had to remind myself that uh Lashana Lynch was in Captain Marvel, and that's why she plays that uh version of Captain Marvel. So it all felt at that point that even though I've seen most of the Marvel TV shows and all the Marvel films, I felt slightly uh out of sorts of the film. And then it leaves that place and goes off and becomes a, a fascinatingly messy finale with zombie Doctor Strange coming in with his cloak of zombies and with that fight with the music. And then you're like, oh yeah, now Raimi's back. But in that kind of leap in the middle act to this Illuminati universe, which is boring to me, it felt like Raimi kind of disappears a bit because he has to have these things in because this is what has been decided of the MCU. Um, yeah, so I... I felt this film was has a really effective first act and a kind of fun last act. I don't know if I think it's a great MCU film. I'm not sure how consequential I think it is because this is the third representation of the multiverse we've had. Well, fourth, if you include What If? And it's the least interesting for me. And so as a multiversal film, I've... And I say this as someone who's I, aware that we've come from... Iron Man 27 films ago, which was about two men in metal suits fighting over LA at that point. And there's nothing in there that's cosmic or magic or any of these complications. And I'm now complaining that 28 films in, it's not weird enough. But a film about the multiverse of madness should feel a bit weirder than this. And I say this with the arrogance of someone who's like, yeah, zombies aren't enough. I want it to go completely bonkers, which we'll talk about with our next film. But yeah, that's where I've landed is that I had fun with this, but I also thought it was, didn't live up to the hype. I think that's fair. It sounds like we're largely in agreement that we, mm. there's a sort of feeling that, well, it's good, but bits of it are shit. <laughs> it's just the multiverse thing has such potential and and like Indeed. this made me appreciate spider-man more i i'm a bit soft on the last spider-man because i think the first half is a mess and then the second half finds a really interesting film but that's use of the multiverse is fascinating to have other versions of the hero who we are aware of and it's not just you know plonking in uh john krasinski because i've seen you know photoshopped images of him for the last five years as Reed Richards because in that Spider-Man film these are two Spider-Mens who we've watched a couple of adventures of their own and so we have that weight of the narrative that we've seen and we're all aware of or at least comic book fans are aware that uh, one of them has his journey and it comes to the end and then the other one didn't complete their franchise and their franchise ends with their love interest dying rather tragically. So there's all that weight being put in and that isn't here because it's fan service, but without the narrative heft. I will give it this. The post credit scene is probably my favourite that Marvel have done. And it's just typical that Sam Raimi was like, hey, Bruce Campbell, you want to be in my film? Okay, I'm going to have you get abused again. <laughs> I mean, I gladly see Sam, Sam Raimi come back to the MCU. I gladly see him come back because he hasn't directed for several years. He hasn't been this fun for a while. I am one of the few defenders of Oz, the powerful and mighty. Is that what it's called? The great and powerful. powerful. The great and powerful. You can't even get the name right. But I'm. <laughs> it's not a very staunch defense. Yeah. I, I, Oz is a fun film for me, but it's not a great 
Raimi film, and this is a, a okay film for me that's got some great Raimi-ness to it. Like the bit where she crawls through the the mirror to come into the room is fantastic. And yeah, I think I should say Elizabeth Olsen is great in this. Agreed. She is fantastic mm. in this. I'm not sure I think I agree with the journey that Wanda has gone on between this and WandaVision in that I think it feels a sudden jump to a rather two-dimensional villain in terms of how she's used. But her performance is terrific. Rachel McAdams is given more to do, which I'm always happy for because I love Rachel McAdams. And Benick Wong steals every scene he's in. <laughs> Guy, oh, I, yeah. I want more of him, but also about the right amount because he just pops in to films for a couple of scenes and that's it. And I kind of am like, I love that you're here. You're doing great things. I want more of you, but probably I shouldn't have more of you. You'll probably just use the right amount. You know, I wonder, just thinking about the way we're talking about um, this particular film, none of us have mentioned really Benedict Cumberbatch in this. And I wonder if that's because, well, he's there and he does his thing and he's fine, but that's about it. And I wonder if it's, mm. um, and I'm reminded of, sorry, I'm not sorry to cast slight aspersions on a favourite of yours, Russell, but I wonder if it, it feels a bit like Batman Returns, where in which Batman himself often seems slightly lost um, amidst the Penguin and Catwoman and even Max Shrek. So I wonder if it's a case of too many um, of too many elements going into the mix. In the case of weirdly, in a film about a about multiverse, maybe there's actually too much. There's too <laughs> mu there's too much multi in there, and as you said, not enough madness. I kind of agree with you. Uh, I won't rise to the slander of Batman Returns, my beloved Batman Returns, but I maybe this needs to be the third Doctor Strange adventure. Maybe the problem for me is that there's stuff set up in the first Doctor Strange that isn't resolved here and has never been resolved here. We don't get anything of... Oh, what's the name of the character? Who's... Uh, of Mordo. Yeah, Mordo was, is set up as an antagonist mm. at the end of Doctor Strange. And that was that's a disappointment. Not, and that's mm -hmm. not dealt with. And, and Strange even acknowledges at one point that Mordo hates him, which is more... I, I don't remember that being where Strange ends his first film with him. It's I thought that Mordo was doing stuff that would then become present to Strange thereafter. So it felt, it felt like maybe there's an adventure before this that we should have watched. Mm, but there be. just hasn't been the time because the MCU is huge and sprawling and has all its heroes and is kind of stuck between individual people's adventures and big group combo adventures. And now we're kind of losing some stuff, maybe. I don't know. But again, I had fun with this film. I think less of, of it because of the next one we're going to talk about. So should we talk about that film? Because I really want to talk about that film. That doesn't seem fair. James, what, what's our what's our other multiverse film? Go into that. So, so in a fascinating turn of events, we have two multiversal films out around the same time, and the next one is from the director's Daniels, and the film is called Everything Everywhere All at Once. Now, this film hasn't hasn't taken in as much as Doctor Strange, but it's been so 
why I think it's been so widely seen in spite of that, particularly overseas. So I think we can talk about spoilers in this instance. Um, would you, if not, yeah. if, if if anyone listening has not yet seen everything everywhere all at once, pause, go see it, and then come back. Yes, if you haven't seen it, you definitely should. If you have, let's take let's continue on. <laughs> so Daniels have made a ton of fantastic short films, and their feature film debut was with 2016 Swiss Army Man which was a heartwarming story about the beauty life can bring while casting Daniel Radcliffe as a farting corpse. It's, that is quite a good indicator for what Daniels can bring as they take fantastical elements and ground them in with human emotion that we can all relate to. And the story with this one begins with Evelyn, a dissatisfied laundromat owner who's played by Michelle Yeoh, who, Vincent, you previously mentioned as being part of uh, multiversal shenanigans in Star Trek Discovery. This is true. Mm. So seems Michelle got a taste for the multiverse now. And in this instance, she's just simply trying to deal with an IRS tax audit. She's dealing with a dissatisfied father, a strained relationship with her daughter and problems which are stemming with her husband. It's small enough issues. And then Evelyn is told she's the multiverse's last hope. And to fight, stop an entity that it, that's intent on destroying the multiverse, she must draw on skills from her alternate lives. Now, this is a film which was made for $25 million. That's one eighth of the budget Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness had with its $200 million budget. In spite of that, I think everything, everywhere, all at once absolutely blows Doctor Strange out of the water because what it delivers are such outlandish ideas which feel so unique, so fascinating that you can just sit in the cinema and probably say to yourself with great certainty, I have never seen anything like this before. And what really works is how it grounds itself in heartfelt emotion with the same level of sincerity, be, be the whole thing focused on Evelyn and her daughter's strained relationship or an alternate universe where people have hot dogs for fingers. It's, uh, Vincent, what you were saying about how it was that Doctor Strange was doing multiversal hopping but Benedict Cumberbatch felt a bit lost in the wayside of it all, how we haven't even mentioned it. What, what this film does is have Evelyn, goes, it goes through the entire multiverse, but has Michelle Yeoh's Evelyn at the centre of it. So no matter how ma many fantastical ideas we're seeing, how many batshit things are flying on the screen, we still have that heart, that emotional centre guiding us. So... And it's just fucking bonkers. This is a film where it just, it has equal parts, references to Wong Kar Wai and Ratatouille, and then also has a fight where two people are trying to fight for control of an award, which one person wants to stick up their ass. 
I don't want to be hyperbolic, but this is some of the best directing I've ever seen. The way it blends familial emotion with Kung Fu cinema, how it combats nihilism with Paddington levels of kindness, how it highlights the importance of googly eyes. I love it so much. I've seen it three times and I just want to see it again and again. I want to take more people to see it and see their reactions to it. Particularly when when Jenny Slate comes in, like Gogo from Kill Bill, but instead of a spiked ball she's kicking around, it's a fucking dog. I just want to see people's reactions, and I want to experience this again and again. I love this so much. I'm going to stop talking. Guys, what do you think? So just so I'm clear on this, James, you're a fan. Am I right? Was it too subtle? Yeah, well, thank you for clarifying. Um, yeah, well, I, I do agree with everything you said. I think that everything everywhere all at once is an extraordinary, bonkers and brilliant bonanza of concepts and emotion and invention and finding the meaning of existence. And it, here's the thing about it. Um, how many, despite being a film that jumps through multiple universes, the vast majority of the action takes place in an IRS office building um, and also a bit in a laundromat. So those are our two principal locations um, and yet through contained largely within those. There was a point, you know, probably coming into the third act and I thought we haven't actually left this tax office building yet. That's kind of impressive. Um, and yeah, the, the combination of different uh, um, cinematic references. There's a lovely nod to, well, riff really on 2001 A Space Odyssey at one point, which I especially enjoyed. Um, plus the, the bum bag, or as they call it in the US, fanny pack kung fu. <laughs> um, and, but all throughout, it is def oh, and, uh, shot through with such emotion, even when characters become rocks. <laughs> um, it is almost like I feel that the filmmakers thought, shall we do this? Yes. Shall we do that? That's a bit wacky, but what the hell? Shall we do this? That's just going to be too silly. Oh, fuck it. Let's do it anyway. Um, and yeah, I cannot think of another film I've seen in recent years that has had such sheer levels of invention and creativity since. Okay, no, but I will say, you know what this is? It is like the live action equivalent of the Lego movie. Oh, not bad. Um, but I the same, but having said that, I know not, not everyone likes the uh, Lego movie. And so this manages, I think, to do something. It, it doesn't feel like that. It's just got a similar sort of level of invention. Um, it is, I think, a wholly unique film. And even though it's out at the same time as... Um, even though it deals with a multiverse, much like Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, they're not particularly similar films, I don't think. Um, yeah, it's inevitable to compare them, but at the same time, they stand equally well on their own. Um, but I guess if you want to see something that is unique, then go for everything, everywhere, all at once. Russell? Uh, holy shit, this film is incredible. <laughs> Holy shit, this film blew me away. I uh, So because it came out several weeks after it had been in America and 
Twitter had been talking for a while about how incredible this film is. Somehow it wasn't spoiled for me. I got a few snippets of stuff, but you can't really place context for the stuff that happens in this film unless you see it. So you can't place context on the rocks or the hot dog fingers or the variant of Ratatouille, which is hilarious. All these aspects can't really put context until you see it. I have yet to coherently put my thoughts together for this. I found it almost a transcendent film, almost a almost feels like when people have a religious experience that was this for me and that we watched a lot of films and most of those films are either mediocre or just fine some are truly bad some are truly great only a couple of years are truly truly something special and this is one of them i mean as you say it's all set in essentially two locales but it covers everything everywhere all at once it is silly and a bit uh it's silly and it has all these has some humor in it that's kind of crass but it's also profoundly moving it's a profoundly moving film i was in tears at the end it has so much to say on the individual on our own experiences of things on what if we had chosen something different what if we'd gone down we taken the left path not the right path where would we have gone so much of this film is fantastic. The cast is phenomenal. Everyone is phenomenal. Everyone is playing multiple parts. That's what's really interesting about this film. If it was kind of slightly boring to watch Benedict Cumberbatch play multiple versions of Doctor Strange because they weren't different. They were all relatively similar. They all had his arrogance. They all had his uh, abilities and his belief in his abilities Whereas this, the idea comes halfway through that Michelle Yeoh's, uh, the Evelyn that we're following, is the worst version of her. And that's why she is the one. It's because she is the most susceptible to taking in skills from other people. So you jump into the multiverses in this film to take skills. So you jump into a multiverse where you know Kung Fu and you learn Kung Fu immediately. It's great. It's kind of like with the Matrix where they could add files into people's heads, but done in a way that's just so well visualized and so well done um i think it's when you watch the last action you realize that it's going across five or six different universes simultaneously and it's almost a montage for 40 minutes but it's entirely coherent you know what's going on you know the stakes and every universe has stakes and that's kind of solving the problem of multiverse films which is if there are an infinite number of universes Death doesn't matter. Consequences don't matter because we'll jump to another universe. Whereas this kind of deals with it in that every universe has consequence. Every universe has meaning. Even if you're just a rock in a universe, that has consequences. I didn't think that watching two rocks communicate with each other would make me cry, but it does. Um, yeah, I, I'm very excited. This will be a film we'll be talking about for a long time. And as much as I enjoyed Doctor Strange 2, it's not a film we'll be talking about for a long time because there'll be another MCU TV show or film that will come through. It will just be part of the churn and it will just be part of our rankings and we'll go back to it occasionally, whereas everything, everywhere, all at once is entirely its own thing. And it is harsh to compare the two because this is not an Armageddon Deep Impact situation where two studios made remarkably similar uh, meteorite films. This is that indie directors made a multiverse film tapping into stuff that's been in sci-fi for decades now that has popped up on a lot of different TV shows. I mean, we could talk about 
Rick and Morty, if we're talking about multiverse, we could talk about community and the dice episode, which creates the idea of many multiverses by simply a roll of the dice. All of this is feeding into everything, everywhere, all at once, more than just MCU's use of it. That's not feeding into it. This is feeding into the idea of what if there are an infinite number of you? What if every choice you make has an equal to it? And what happens then? And also, what if there are all those universes where life could not be sustained on this planet? What does that mean? All, all this stuff is in this film. And yet one of the high points is a, giant, a guy leaping onto a uh, dildo-shaped award to gain superpowers, to gain a power in that universe. I love this film. I've only seen it once. I kind of might go see it again, but I also found it an overwhelming experience because cinema is so rarely this coherent and brave and bold. And I think I can only have it rarely. Also, I did this as, uh, so the day before this, I saw Bernadetta and then I saw this. And those are two films that are firmly my top four. This is my favorite film of the year so far. And they're both testaments to directing, to authorship, to an author's style, to confidence, to telling a story that's got all, so much to it. To, you know, crass humour being, colliding with philosophical points and huge wellsprings of emotions. Yeah, this is a masterpiece. This is, I have to say, it, it, I don't know if I'll see a better film this year. If I do, what a year. Sorry, that was a lot. <laughs> hey that's what hey, you know that's, that's that's fine i mean sometimes as um consumers and pundits and critics we rant but other times we rave mm-hmm. yeah this is <laughs> and like things like bringing back uh kai hu kwan who's not had a acting career for decades he's been he's worked in fight choreography since his 80s uh, heyday of the Goonies and uh, Temple of Doom, but to bring him back, and he is wonderful in this. Stephanie Sue, who plays the daughter, is wonderful in this. James Hong, who's had an incredible career, is wonderful in this. Jamie Lee Curtis is doing more than just lying in a hospital bed in this one, mm-hmm. and she clearly is having so much fun by being given stuff to do. And yeah, I, I yeah, no more. I won't say any more. Well, I think we can all say that uh, this, there's plenty to enjoy in everything, everywhere, all at once. And that the multiverse idea is here for a long time because it'll come back in at Marvel. We can be certain that what we're getting towards is a multiversal war at some point that we'll have, is it Kang the Conqueror? Is that his name? Yep. Yes. He's coming. We've had one version of him. More versions are coming which is exciting. And also DC will be doing this if we ever see The Flash, which you know <laughs> we could spend a while talking about The Flash, but we'll save that for another episode. <laughs> what franchise do you think is going to co-op the multiverse multiverse next in their franchise? Because I'm wondering if Fast and Furious are going to end things like that. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh tough call, that one. I mean, as we've said... Marvel and DC and Star Trek and I forgot to mention earlier Doctor Who have all done yes. multiverse. Um, yeah, sure, why not? Maybe Terminator. Um, Terminator feels because of yeah. time travel creates its own multiverse. It uh, could have done, but so far it seems to have gone more for the 
changing history approach than yeah. the parallel timelines. Kind of five Arnies in one room, can we? <laughs> that was done. I do remember seeing a comedy sketch version of that once. <laughs> um, hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, could be Fast and Furious. Who knows? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, no, thank you. Agreed. Five Vin Diesel's in a room. Oh, God. <laughs> What's happening? I'm not your husband. I'm another version of one from another universe. I'm here because we need your help. Very busy today. A whole time to help you. So those are two films. One we love, one we think is good enough. Bit of a mess, but had some fun of it. Uh, I, I will not talk about everything ever all at once again because I'll talk for another 20 minutes about how amazing it is. <laughs> so we're going to end. We're going back to our singular universe with a trio of recommendations. So we've got our something picks. So something of our something old. James, what have you got for us this month? Well, since we've previously talked about crimes of the future, I'm going to suggest an, uh, a film from director David Cronenberg, 1979's The Brood. Now, the plot follows this man who's investigating the work of this unconventional psychologist played by Oliver Reed. And basically, the man is looking into him because his wife is institutionalized and he's worrying about how this psychologist is affecting on his wife's um, mental health. Now, coinciding with this are a series of brutal attacks which are being committed by murderous mutant children. Now, I first watched this as I was delving further into the body horror side of Cronenberg's filmography. And what I found is one of my favorite things to see in a body horror Cronenberg film is how far the effects will go, because it's always fascinating. And The Brood has something at a pivotal point, which I can say I was far from ready from what my eyes would behold. And it's a shocking moment within this engrossing 90-minute film that's wrapped around psychological traumas with genuinely upsetting kills and really creepy children. It's an excellent film to delve into from, from David Cronenberg's work. Long live the new flesh and all that. Long live the brood. Not one of his I've managed to watch yet, but I have seen the picture of the kids and they mm-hmm. are, okay. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, up there with the, um, with, with the menacing um, small figure in uh, Don't Look Now. Oh, yes. yes. I think this is on Amazon Prime, actually. Yeah, I think that's where I, um, yeah, I, I saw uh, The Brood not long ago as well um, for much the same reason. And yeah, I'm pretty sure I know the moment you're describing there, James. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, it has that um, st- perhaps what we expect from Cronenberg, particularly early Cronenberg, that somewhat um, de- cold, detached look um, at well, both in this case, both at the of the body and the mind, um, at the same time creating these peculiar institutions because um, the like the. Uh, the mental health facility, it's like called the Institute of Plasmotics, I think. Mm, um, sounds about right. Yeah. 
which when you think about it, the word plasmotic does sound, yeah, well, that would be to do with com combination of body and mind and unusual developments in the human body, shall we say. I love that we were giving full spoilers for films that are out now, but we are not giving <laughs> detailed spoilers for a film that's as old as me. <laughs> yeah, so, <clears throat> but there you go. But there are, yeah, I, I, but um, I think we would both recommend it. Um, wouldn't we, James? Ag very much agreed. Um, mm. Vincent, what is your something new? Well, my something new is us. No, I don't mean the Jordan Peele film from a couple of years ago. I mean men. 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 Now, this is the new film by Alex Garland, currently in cinemas, um, starring uh, Jesse Buckley and Rory Kinnear and Rory Kinnear, and Rory Kinnear. You know, we may not be in multiverse, but we are in interesting forms of uh, multiple identity, perhaps. Now, when I saw men being advertised, um, I remember think I facetiously described it as the ultimate horror movie, because let's face it, what's more horrific than men, than patriarchy, and so on. But weirdly, I feel that the film actually does succeed as being the ultimate horror movie, but for a different reason. Because I cannot think of another horror film that has combined so many different um, subgenres into a single film. Men gives us folk horror. It has cosmic horror. It has body horror. It has psychological horror. It has occult horror. It has monster horror. It has patriarchy horror. It has domestic horror. It has social horror. It has trauma. It has doppelganger. It has haunting. It has nature. If there's something that can be horrific, it's there. Now, uh, whether that succeeds or not will somewhat depend on the viewer, of course. But for me, men grips, baffles, shocks and disturbs to fantastic effect. Now, give a synopsis here. Um, Jesse Buckley plays Harper, a woman who's um, recently widowed, and she takes herself off to the country to a gorgeous uh, manor house that um, at a little village located somewhere in Gloucestershire. It's a bit hot fuzz in that way, I suppose. Um, and when she's there, she starts having, shall we say, some less than friendly encounters with the locals who all look like Rory Kinnear. Although perhaps I should specify, all of the men look like Rory Kinnear. There are a couple of women who show up and they are played by different performers. Now, because Kinnear plays all these multiple characters, much has been made of his performances. Because um, he's playing these, in some cases, some very um, English archetypes. Um, and in other cases, some you know, some proper like horror icons in effect, um, whole new horror icons being created. Um, it's also important to note that Jessie Buckley is great in this as well. I mean, she always is, but she does a wonderful job of putting forward somebody who is tormented and haunted, but at the same time has a certain resolve to her. And, you know, she is very, I mean, she really carries the film well. Um, I think that um, as a horror film, it's properly scary, um, properly atmospheric. Um, I think as a 
as a something that uses its environment, uses both the countryside as well as the house where many things happen, where much of the action takes place. It's very good in terms of its setting. Um, there are some seriously icky moments of body horror um, that on the one hand will be making you go like, oh, and also making you go, ah! Um, it's perhaps not as cohered as some of Alex, well, as Alex Garland's, previ Garland's previous work. Personally, I absolutely love Ex Machina, and I was very impressed by Annihilation. All of the different elements that I mention are in this film. Maybe it's too much. Perhaps it doesn't all hold together. But I will say the reservations I have are only after when I'm reflecting on it. I wasn't I didn't have any problems with the film when I was watching it because I was too scared. Because <laughs> sometimes it's crawly, sometimes it's intense and visceral, and sometimes it's revolting and nauseating. Uh, the final act is completely mad, but it is ultimately satisfying. There's a lot here. Maybe it's too much. What do you guys think? I haven't seen it yet, so okay. I shall step out of this one, but I am very interested by it. Yeah, I, I think it's a whole mess of ideas, and there isn't, it doesn't, quite have the finale I needed for them all to be pulled together but there is some really fascinating stuff here and a pair of performers who are both doing very different things and are both doing them really well Buckley is fantastic here I mean she's fantastic in everything but she's fantastic here in someone doing a grief, trauma, guilt loss, all of that and it's quite a grounded performance for the most part which is fascinating because Rory Kinnear is out recreating something like the League of Gentlemen by being all these archetypes. And it's, I didn't realize that Rory Kinnear could be as scary as he is in this film. And from the moment he's on screen, he's unsettling, even when he's playing someone who seems like the most likable version of himself or of that, whatever he is. Um, is that a spoiler? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, as Jeffrey, who is our first encounter with him, he's wonderfully sinister whilst being on the surface a really likable figure, but it is that likability that makes him sinister. And it's, yeah. So I think there's just slightly too much in this film for me to quite decide where I fall on it, but I am fascinated by it. And it is... A really interesting I think it feels almost like a lockdown project for uh, Garland that because it has a, a small cast a um, lot of scenes are not with a lot of people on the screen or out in the wilderness out in the woods surrounding it it's yeah it's a deeply fascinating film that doesn't quite land the ending for me but I don't quite understand the ending so maybe I need to rewatch it to understand the ending and when I have some more understanding of it I'll like it slightly more, but I am, yeah, it's one of the better elevated horrors of late for me. I Don't feel. you dare use that term. It is an elevated, <laughs> well, fine. A24 horror, whatever type of horror you want to call this, a horror with ideas, a horror where the horror is X, Y, Z, racism, aging, uh, patriarchy, whatever it is that is the societal horror that's being explored. Uh, this is not Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the new one where 
nothing is being explored and it's just people being killed horribly. This has ideas and concepts and themes and maybe there are slightly too many of them in the mix, but it is nonetheless a really fascinating watch for me. The only kind of elevated horror I want to know about is a film that would be called The Lift. What about Devil? M. Night Shyamalan's produced uh, people in a lift and one of them is the devil. I forgot that existed. So has everyone. I haven't seen it. (laughs) A long time ago, I was in a uh, student film called Truth Box about four people who get trapped in a lift and have to confront certain crimes that they have committed. So there you go. It's a it's an idea that uh, that one can lift lift up and down. <laughs> Russell, what would you like to tell us about that is Snaff? Ah, Snaff, ah, something that's not a film. Um, so I had some trouble this week, because, this time, because I haven't watched much of the new Stranger Things. I've watched the first episode and I've enjoyed it, but I can't really recommend something on one episode. I've not watched Obi-Wan Kenobi yet, very much planned to. Uh, I was tempted to talk about a show called Slow Horses, which is on Apple TV and is like spooks if you have a cast that's Oscar winning. So it's got money and budget and it's still the nonsense of spooks. But where I've landed on and to loop us back to our multiverse MCU chat is on Moon Knight. That while I have reservations about some of the films we've got from Marvel of late, I have found myself being drawn into their TV shows as they're used to be fascinating character explorations. Before I watched Stop Strange 2, I watched all of WandaVision that day. I had not seen WandaVision before, so I watched it all before I went in and watched Doctor Strange 2, and that probably affects my opinion of Wanda's journey in that film because I spent hours on a nuanced character study, and Moon Knight is another nuanced character study. It follows uh, Stephen Grant, who is having trouble sleeping. He's obsessed with uh, ancient Egypt. And it turns out he might have another person in him, that there might be someone else who has superpowers in him and might be linked to the moon god. It's complicated. There's a lot of strangeness in this. But over the six episodes, it's utterly compelling and fascinating. And at its core is a performance from Oscar Isaacs. Well, multiple performances from Oscar Isaacs that are compelling and interesting and deeply moving. And it, he's probably my favourite performance in all of the MCU is the one he gives here because the time is given for it to be fleshed out and to become something interesting and compelling. And there's always the very best MCU TV shows have a moment where the character learns something about themselves that's kind of devastating, that is deeply impactful that explains so much about them that the films don't have the room to do anymore because they've got two, two and a half hours to tell a story and to run through to an epic conclusion. Um, Yeah, I had, I think Moon Knight is fantastic. I think it's either this or Loki is my favourite MCU TV show. Even Hawkinson is the villain and he's a lot of fun in this Uh, and it doesn't connect into the MCU in any overt way which I thought was admirable because I can imagine for a lot of people, it's slightly maddening that there's no reference to any of the other heroes that no one else pops up, that it's just this story, this slightly strange story that is nonetheless wonderfully compelling. Yeah. It's on Disney plus. I'm sure you all have Disney plus by now. It's six episodes long. 
I loved it. Yep, I enjoyed it hugely as well. It was, um, yeah, it uh, managed to do the thing of like, on the one hand, it gave me what I kind of expect from an MCU product while also giving me something more. Um, it's interesting from, um, it's, it's, it's quite progressive, I think, from a racial perspective. It features the MCU's first Egyptian um, <clears throat> superhero character. Um, and anytime when you, I think you've got F. Murray Abraham voicing a big <laughs> bird-headed god thing with a certain sardonicness, then you know you're in for something interesting. I should have also said that Benson and Moorhead direct a number of episodes and have now Indeed. seem to have been um, brought into the fold as I think they've been doing other MCU TV shows down the line. There's another one. I can't remember which one they're on. Whether Loki on season one. two. Loki, thank you. Loki season two. Oh, so, yeah. yeah, more of that kind of thing is good mm-hmm. for me. I've only seen the first two episodes because I'm quite rubbish with keeping up with TV. <laughs> uh TV is hard to keep up with. There's too much. Yeah. Yeah. I think Taskmaster is the only thing I don't fall back on. But I was really, I got such enjoyment out of the first two episodes, especially with Oscar Isaac's performance as Stephen Grant. And I'm very interested to see where else it goes. And I know I need to catch up. Yeah. It's kind of Oscar Isaac's is a bit adorable as the British version of his character. Uh, and in the first episode, there is a really fun car chase where Stephen is coming in and out of consciousness along that car chase. And it's all to uh, wham, wake me up before you go, go, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I watched that fairly soon after I'd watched the Batman. I was like, comic book properties need to do more car chases because this is fun. Hmm. Yeah. And that, and that moment, as well as I think some other moments in Moon Knight were reminiscent to tie it back to where we were earlier of um bruce campbell in evil dead 2 and indeed in doctor strange in the multiverse of madness <laughs> having shall we say uh, some anatomical difficulties <laughs> from the garden yeah it was delicious no, no 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 mustn't do that forbidden fruit oh god sorry i, I i'm I, joking I oh so those are our recommendations. You've got two films and a TV show. Well, several TV shows. I, mean, I kind of cheated there. <laughs> um, and we'll have more of those next month. So remember, nothing really matters and you can be the best variant of yourself, but it does. nothing really matters. So it's all okay. Right, guys? Totally. Good. Yeah, nothing matters. Do what makes you happy. Exactly. And if that involves you watching all of David Cronenberg's back catalogue to prepare for crimes of the future, do that. If it means that you're going to wear your underpants and play Fortnite for 16 hours straight. I've never played Fortnite, by the way. Don't understand it. You can do that. Whatever it is that makes you happy, do it. And we'll be back next month. And before this all ends, we have been... Who have you been, Vincent? Well, I have been me in this universe and uh, across my but you can find my various identities and iterations across all the universes by searching at dr gain that's d-r-g-a-i-n-e 
That's where you can find me on Instagram and Twitter and Letterboxd, where, where I post my reviews of what I've seen, as well as my um, musings as well, and also as well as including links to my reviews on places like Bloody Good Screen, um, The Geek Show, and the Critical Movie Critics, where indeed you can find my review of Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. James, if I wanted to come across into your universe, what would mm -hmm. be the best way to do so? Um, well, it, nothing really matters, and that includes following me on social media, because you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at RoddersJ04, spelled with two Ds, and um, my reviews, podcast appearances, articles, and that are at thereviewingrodders.co.uk, which includes a review of Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is less spoilery than our discussion in today's episode. But I like what I've done, but nothing matters, so do what you want. And, and Russell, where can people find you if they would like to see more of your magnificent fuzzy face? Now, you have to follow me because the key to every multiverse, to every multiverse, you need to follow me on Twitter, which is at Russ Loves Movies. Or you can have the other podcast feed, which is this the sister to this or the brother. I don't know. doesn't really matter. Which is um, Not Just For Kids podcast. And on there, we're bringing our musicals to a close. And we will be doing a couple of episodes this summer all about various bits of kind of carry on and bond and harry potter stuff that i'm not going to cover in more than just one episode but i've got great guests to come on to chat about those incredible things and then we'll get on to a whole mess of modern animated films so it's going to be a lot oh and if you go on my twitter i'm, I'm starting to pop up in more other podcasts so come on there you'll find me retweeting people who have let me come on to ramble about stuff which means they haven't really listened to most of my podcasts because you wouldn't want to do that if you listen to me but anyway that's where i am you got to save the day by following me you save every multiverse by following me and there we have it another body people episode we'll be back next month but before that point just go off and be awesome be fabulous and you know if you see boris johnson remember to boo him boo. <laughs> i was saying boo words <laughs> <laughs>